Well, we all love a good story where justice is served. Uh, And there's a particular subculture of the internet uh, created by, I presume, my generation uh, that talk about this thing called instant karma. Uh, It's basically this idea where there is an injustice that has been uh, created and it's dealt with an instant payback. So a great example of this might be uh, the school bully beats up the kid for lunch money and then he turns around and slips on a banana peel, that kind of thing. That's instant karma. Well, my wife the other day, uh, she's driving down the centenary motorway, uh, heading towards the city, and there was this hoon driving up behind her, tailgating, nice and close. Uh, The gentleman was high-beaming, changing lanes left and right, honking everyone, because where my wife was, there were two other cars around her doing the exact same speed. Now, he couldn't get around her, and he was getting quite frustrated. Now, there was a gap that opened up about 100 metres down the road, a tiny weeny one, uh, just big enough for his car to fit, not really big enough to be safe, but it was enough for him to kind of muscle his way in and speed off into the distance, which he did. Now, you all probably know how this is going to end, because would you know it, at the end of the centenary motorway, uh, about a kilometre they were at the off-ramp, there were the men in blue, and they'd pulled this gentleman over and were speaking to him through his driver's window. And this gave my wife a little leap of joy in her heart to see justice served so swift and so quickly. Uh, we all love moments like this, don't we? Uh, because deep down, we, we all love a good bit of justice, especially when it is served quick and hot. Well, last week in Esther, we saw uh, a healthy serving of poetic justice. Uh, as Haman, uh, in this amazing turn of events, was shamed from his honoured position, he was ousted as the enemy of the Jews, and then was executed on the very spike he had set up for Mordecai. But with this said, there was still a massive problem. True and final justice was yet to be seen. And if you're following along, this is where we'll launch into point one. God's people are delivered uh, from an irrevocable annihilation, or I've changed it on the screen there, from a certain annihilation because it's a bit easier to say. So if we cast our minds back to last week, uh, as we saw the death of Haman, some of us may have preemptively thought to ourselves, it's over, we've we've won, Uh, as Haman is ironically skewered on this pole 23 metres in the air, the very one he'd set up for Mordecai. Uh, It can be easy to slip into thinking, well, the war is over, and so there are now no more battles to fight. However, one massive problem remained for the people of God here in Esther 8-10. to Namely that Haman, the enemy of the Jews, yes, he may be dead, but he had set a law in motion. The irrevocable edict he'd set in motion, outlining the grisly destruction of all of the Jews, was very much alive and well. Like an avalanche coming down off a high mountain, this thing was not going to stop until it had reached its final destination. Now, very briefly, I want us to cast our mind back to chapter 3, because I want to remind us of the strange method that that Haman used uh, to plan out the exact date that this would occur. Because there are several things that are important about this uh, that we need to understand in order to get what's going on here in chapters 8 to 10. So I've got it up on the screen there, starting at verse 6 of chapter 3, we read, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. 
in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Now, there are a couple of things that are worth seeing in this, things worth uh, noting here in order to make sense of what we're going to look at. Firstly, the pur. Uh, This was the Persian name for this dice or this cube that was rolled uh, in order to determine the date. And strangely enough, this becomes the very name or the basis of the name of the Jewish festival of Purim, which we'll see in chapter 9 shortly. The second amazing thing about this roll is the dates. And I didn't cover this back then, and I want you to see them now. It's rolled on the first month of the year, the month of Nisan. And the dice, the result that shows up, is the last month of the year for the date of their destruction, the month of Adar. This allows almost a full year of breathing room before the date of their destruction, about 11 months of wiggle room for the Jews. It's the furthest distance that the date could have been set with the roll of the dice. It's quite amazing when we think about it, and it points us back once again to the hand of God at work in everything. Now, it might seem a little weird that that Haman rolled this date and he just accepts the dice roll. And if I was in his position, I'd say, oh, that that was a practice throw. Why not just pick it up again, give it a shake, give it a blow, roll it again and see if you can get something a bit more fortuitous here. But as we consider the powerful effect superstition has on many people even today, we might start to understand why he accepted this date. You see, many people even now will open up their newspapers and they will make life decisions based on horoscopes they read in there. Uh, People will make decisions based on gut feelings. Uh, Superstition, it even uh, goes through Rafael Nadal. This is one of my favourites where he gets his water bottles as he's playing and he faces the label towards the opponent at the other end of the court. It's bizarre, but it's, it's the things that people do out of superstition. And Haman, I suspect he wasn't much different. This Persian dice, it's cast, and he accepts the result, uh, I presume in the same way that he would have accepted it as like a lucky roll or or a fortuitous outcome. So there would have been a trust that this was the perfect date to annihilate all the Jews. Now, the irony is that this was, in fact, the perfect date, but just not in the way that he had first thought. As the biblical proverb goes, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And that's certainly what's happening here. At any rate, humanly speaking, here in Esther chapter 3, the date for the Jews' destruction is set. And so as we approach chapter 8, even after the death of Haman, the horrible reality of annihilation still looms for the people of God. They're still terrified. This day is still coming. His legacy of evil continues even after his death. But as chapter 8 begins, there is a tiny silver lining that we see. Uh, This tiny gap of hope opens up as King Xerxes elevates Mordecai in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Uh, In fact, he gives Mordecai his signet ring, the very one that was used to seal uh, their destruction earlier on in chapter 3. 
But despite this symbolic act of handing over such great authority, as I've said time and time again, the problem still remains. Now, in case uh, you as the reader forgot uh, that the edicts that were written in the name of the Persian kings can't be revoked, we are actually reminded of that in today's passage in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8. We're reminded that no document written in the name of the king and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Now, I might sound a bit like a broken record here. I've said this about four or five times already in this talk, and you might be thinking, yeah, yeah, I get it. Persian laws can't be revoked. You know, what's your point? Why do I keep saying this? Well, the point is that we are terrible at remembering things. In fact, the whole of the Christian life really is one of forgetting God's goodness, forgetting who he is, forgetting who he has made us through Jesus. And so sometimes the only way to drill it in deep enough is to repeat over and over and over again. You see, once we realise that, that we are helpless, we're so utterly dependent on God for even our very heartbeats, then this is what brings us to our knees in worship of him. Once we realise, for example, that we are fully deserving of his wrath, only then can we fully appreciate the glorious salvation found in Jesus. So we need to be reminded of these things, of who we were. And we'll talk about this uh, as we approach the end. Uh, but it's important to note that, that just as the edict in the book of Esther can never be overridden, uh, neither can the threat of our deserved destruction in hell be forgotten. Okay, we need to be reminded of this all the time. So here the king, he reminds Esther that these decrees can't be revoked in chapter 8, verse 8. But those of you, if you have your Bibles with you and with keen and eagle eyes, uh, you'd know that this isn't the whole story in verse 8. I've actually conveniently left out part of it there. Uh, in the first half, uh, this is the solution, in fact, that King Xerxes gives Esther to solve the problem of these edicts that can't go away. And so he writes, uh, he says, Now write another decree in the name of the king uh, in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. This is the solution, at least in Persia, right? You've got a bad law? Well, just add another one on top of that. Just kind of layer it like a cake. And so as history repeats itself... Uh, in Esther, we see that a new royal law is written. It's sealed with the king's signet ring. And the royal posties, they're summoned once again. Uh, we saw them back in chapter 3, verse 12. And they're told to send this new decree, just as it was back in chapter 3, uh, in all the languages and all the scripts of the people, to all the provinces across Persia, into all the important people, the governors, the princes, and so on. But there is one key difference with this one is that these uh, people, Mordecai and Esther, they get a special privilege here because their edict is going via express post. You see, they've been granted use of the beefed-up horses, especially bred for the king himself, in verse 10. Now, the contents of this edict, uh, some of it was read out, it may have made us feel a little bit awkward at first, because it doesn't simply say that those attacking the Jews should stand down. Uh, presumably, they, they probably couldn't even write that because that would have revoked an irrevocable decree. So instead, 
What they wrote in this letter was something that granted every Jew in every city, uh, from verse 11, the right to assemble and effectively arm themselves and protect themselves. Uh, If you know the US, you'd know this sounds a bit like the Second Amendment in the Constitution, which us as Australians even makes us a little bit wary at times, makes us uncomfortable, the right to bear arms and carry guns about. But not only this, the Jews, they're given permission to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. This is pretty hardcore. This is eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of stuff going on here. Now, admittedly, even I find this a bit awkward. Even after I preached this this morning, people still had questions about the legitimacy of this. They're to act in self-defense, but when terms like destroy, kill, and annihilate are used, this sounds a little bit more than self-defense. So what are we to make of this? How are we to understand this? Now, the first thing that's worth pointing out here is that this isn't exactly equivalent to the initial decree. See, Haman's initial decree was to wipe out an entire race of people, literally genocide. This decree was simply to defend against anyone who might attempt to do that. Uh, Presumably, there were those out there that still uh, wanted to follow through on the initial decree, even if they received this other one, uh, because the people of God... Uh, As we know, all across uh, many millennia of history, the people of God will always have strong opposition in this world. The second thing worth noting uh, is that even though the Jews are given full permission in this new royal decree to plunder the property of their enemies, uh, in chapter 9, verse 11, to to take their TVs and the iPhones and the jewellery and the other valuable things that uh, their enemies happen to own, the author here is quick to point out In several occasions, uh, if you want to write these down, you can. In chapter 9, verse 10, 15, and 16, we read in all these verses that the Jews didn't, in fact, take advantage of this right. In fact, even with Haman's property, they didn't touch it. Now, the reason this is important is because it it signals that there is some kind of self-restraint going on here by the people of God. They don't get an inch and take a mile... Nevertheless, we we don't want to underplay this either. This is still very significant. There is still a lot of death that goes on, 75,000 people if you count later on. So it is a bit weird. It's a bit strange. This is something that perhaps you can talk about afterwards, after the sermon, uh, consider how we should best understand this. Uh, But I do want to add that this is supposed to be symbolic of a complete reversal of fate for God's people. There's a sense in which... The plan was already dug by Haman and these people who are the enemy of the Jews and it's flipped entirely on its head, which I think is the reason the equivalent words are used here. But by his providence, God's people, uh, they are delivered through this method from the jaws of annihilation. Uh, This act, this act of God's justice, uh, as they are delivered... It is certainly something worth rejoicing about. It is something worth celebrating. And this brings us uh, to point two. God's people are delivered from a certain annihilation, which leads to celebration. 
So here in Esther, uh, the Jews, they celebrate their deliverance by creating this new festival, uh, as I mentioned earlier, called Purim in chapter 9, verse 26. And if you cast your eyes down the verse, you'd see that the festival is based off the name of the dice that Haman had rolled, the Pur. Now, it might seem a bit strange to you that that they would name a celebration based off the implement of their uh, pending death, uh, the, the Purim, this dice, But this is kind of what we do as Christians. You see, we even celebrate the cross of Christ, the implement of judgment that meant the death of our king. Now, obviously, we we don't worship the cross itself, uh, but we do say things like, well, let's put our worries at the foot of the cross. Or we speak of turning our eyes towards the cross of our salvation and things like this. There's a sense in which this symbol of Roman execution is simply part of our vocabulary as Christians, uh, and it's something that we celebrate. Uh, In fact, it was the same for Paul. I'll give you two very quick uh, New Testament references here. Uh, We've got 1 Corinthians. Paul says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's kind of strange that he doesn't say except Jesus Christ and him crucified resurrected, you know, or him ascended and seated in the heavenly realms. No, he resolved to know nothing except Christ crucified. It's interesting. Uh, In Galatians, Paul's even more explicit where he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So when we consider the, the universal symbol for Christianity as being the cross, uh, this should hopefully help make it a bit easier for us to understand why the Jews would name their festival over the implement of their death. Uh, It's almost mocking it. (laughs) There's something ironic about it, and that's kind of the point. Now, this festival of Purim, uh, it was one of feasting and rejoicing in 918. Uh, one in which we're told in verse 22 the Jews sent food and gifts to one another. And this has continued on even until today. If you look it up, there are Jews all around the world that still celebrate this festival. But here in chapter 9, it's not all about celebration per se. Because in the second half of chapter 9, if you look carefully, there are two letters sent to the Jews in Persia. One from Mordecai and one presumably from Esther. Mordecai's letter we read uh, in 9.20 and following, uh, it says this. Have them celebrate annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy in their mourning into a day of celebration. And he wrote to them to observe these days as days of feasting, and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So on the one hand, this was a day of great joy and celebration. There would have been a lot of shouting and cheering and and dancing going on because God here had turned the tables completely upside down for his people where at one moment they were under threat of effectively extinction. Now they've been saved by the hand of God. But the second letter we read about, well, it takes a slightly different tone and it's worth looking at. I think it's necessary because this is actually part of how we see our deliverance 
uh, eternal deliverance through Jesus as well. Uh, the second letter we read from chapter 9, verses 29 and following, uh, we read this. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. To establish these days of Purim as their, uh, at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of what? Fasting and lamentation. You see, there's both celebration and lamentation when it comes to this great deliverance. There's both feasting and fasting going on. And it's important to see both sides of the coin here, to appreciate both the first letter's insistence on celebration and also the second letter's insistence on lamentation, crying out to God in in passionate expressions of grief or sorrow. These things both need to happen because they both tell us something profound about the very nature of rejoicing. In other words, to, to truly Uh, celebrate the salvation they had received, it was absolutely critical for them to remember what they had been saved from, to remember the terrifying situation they were in before deliverance arrived. And it's here that I want to move on to point three uh, to land this, because I think it's more important now than ever that we as Christians understand the richness of this particular approach to celebration of both rejoicing and lamenting in celebration of our undeserved deliverance through Jesus. And so this brings us to point three, celebrating our undeserved deliverance. Well, a while back, uh, Annie and I, my wife and I, we lived uh, with, I think, what was probably the cheapest rent in Brisbane. Uh, We managed to score a three-bedroom townhouse Uh, It was situated on an Anglican theological college in the heart of Milton. And for this three-bedroom place, we paid $250 a week. And that included electricity. It was a really good deal. This was amazingly cheap. Uh, While we lived there, we we rubbed shoulders with many of the students going through the college. Uh, Some of them... Uh, evangelical even, just trying to push through to become Anglican ministers to kind of reform the church from within. And some of these people were still friends with even till today. But it didn't take long as we stayed at the college to know what the teaching was like, what the lectures were like. I even audited one of their subjects at the time because I wanted to understand what they were going through. And I realised very quickly that not only did this place have cheap rent it also had a cheap gospel. They'd moved on from acknowledging the depths of their sin and their rejection of God. And this was a warning, I think, that we even today need to hear as a church. Because I fear that if we're not careful, if we aren't vigilant, faithfully teaching the full word of God, we can so easily fall into the trap of cheapening the gospel too. Cheapening it into the sense where, where things that we've been saved from are removed from the pulpit. Things that we've been saved from are removed from the songs that we sing. Uh, the problem of sin slowly disappears and 
We start preaching that God accepts all of us, no matter what lifestyle we embrace. And so God's wrath against our sin and his judgment in that sense is just forgotten. Uh, Where hell, for example, is turned into a myth. And we're left with little more than an all-accepting club who bears the name Christian without anything Christ-like about us. There's a reason that Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. There's a reason that God's final judgment in Revelation is far more bloodthirsty than anything we've seen in Esther and anything you see all throughout the Old Testament. You see, we can only truly understand and celebrate the depths of our salvation and the riches of God's love and the immense value of God's place in our lives if we also remember the pain and the terror of his fiery wrath which awaited each and every one of us here this evening. And so my question to you as we approach the end of Esther, the end of this book, uh, is this. If the Jews celebrated uh, Purim with joy and feasting and with lament and fasting for a deliverance from destruction that they didn't deserve, how much more should we as Christians celebrate our undeserved deliverance from a destruction we absolutely did deserve? Now, one of the Small problems uh, for us as Presbyterians is that we aren't known for our emotional enthusiasm. Uh, It's rare to see hands raised in the air as we sing. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that, but we just don't tend to do it. Uh, We're hard-pressed on many occasions to talk about our feelings during Bible study. And yet, I guarantee you that if there is a hoon driving behind you on the road wanting to overtake you and you see him getting pulled over by the cops that you'll leap for joy in that car. the very least, a broad smile will appear on your face. If your sports team wins the season, the emotional side of you will come out. We are emotional creatures, but for some reason, it's not really shown in our rejoicing of our salvation as much. Now, I say this because proper rejoicing, it involves both the head and the heart working together. This is actually one of the reasons we sing in church. Uh, There is supposed to be an emotional aspect of our praise. Uh, This is why we, we share or we should share some of the more personal parts of our lives with our Bible studies and our growth groups. And this is another encouragement that that we should spend time with those who are weak and who are struggling. Because the emotional part of our body and soul matters. But, before we swing the pendulum too far one way, as we do this, we also need to keep the truth of the gospel front and centre. To be changed by the renewal of our minds. To let the gospel truth inform our hearts. It's a both and working together. And so this morning, as we wrap up, as we ponder the truth of our deliverance from every sin, as we contemplate the great rescue that God has accomplished for us in Jesus, suffering in our place, let's ponder how we can genuinely celebrate and rejoice in our deliverance with all of our heart and mind and soul.
with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, awaken us to the truth of what we've been saved from. Help us uh, to perhaps feel the weight of our sin if we haven't recently, but to know with absolute certainty who we are in Jesus. Lord, please help us to rejoice in the deliverance you carried out in the world and to share this hope and joy we have in Jesus with those around us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.